0: I've been waiting for the teacher to get close enough to where I can hear him speak. And finally, the day came. Of course, it was a full day's journey, but it was so worth it. He said so many amazing things in his sermon. But one thing that really stuck out to me was when he talked about heaven Imagine you're hiking through the woods and you're on a piece of land that's for sale. And you're hiking and then you stumble across a treasure chest and you open it and you find 1 million dollars. And you get excited and you you bury the chest real quick and you glance over your shoulder and then you jog back to your car because you have to have this piece of land. Now these days we have we have smartphones and and so to figure out the price of that land was really easy. You find out that it's 20,000 dollars. You don't have 20,000 dollars. So what do you do? Well you sell everything you own. You quickly you sell your car, you sell everything that's in your apartment, everything, because it's a small sacrifice for this treasure chest. And so you buy the land, and the chest is yours. That's what he says the kingdom of heaven is like. That's how awesome it is.
1: Thank you, Shaley. Thanks to the creative team uh, for putting that together. It's just a little something to set the tone for us. As you, uh, as you might have seen last week, we had uh, Nathan uh, Dickerson talk from the pers- first-person perspective of somebody who was there listening to Jesus uh, that day. Um, so a moment of transparency. I've had a frustrating week. <laughs> uh, how's that for a good sermon starter? Frustrating week. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details, of course, but it was pretty frustrating, sort of more than normal. Um, but it was a lot like last week was, which for me was a pretty frustrating week, which was a lot like <laughs> the week before going back about, oh, I don't know, six or seven weeks ago when I had the last week that I can remember that was not super, super frustrating uh, for me. And and that was not a frustrating week because I was on a cruise with my, with my wife, yes. That was an amazing week of rest and relaxation, parades Jesus. Here we are, Costa Maya, Mexico. Let's all just kind of have a moment together (laughs) and long for the pristine blue waters of the Western Caribbean. Amen. Are we preaching yet? That was nice. That was nice. It's going to look even better next week when the 90-inch TVs are working, for the record. So yeah, that was nice. It was relaxing. It was a wonderful time. Uh, I enjoyed it. We had um, the first not frustrating week um, that I'd had in a long time before that and that I've had since. Um, But vacation over. (laughs) A lot of times I get to the middle of a week and with everything that's going on, with all the responsibilities, with the the weight of what needs to be done, what's not done, uh, what I have yet to do, um, I get to the middle of the week and I think, Is it even worth it? I found myself uber frustrated with a number of things this particular week. Uh, And so I texted my wife a few times and, you know, said to some friends and staff members, it feels to me like just just not worth it. (laughs) All the effort and the sacrifice and time and the energy. um, It just feels like it's not worth it. You ever get there? if we're being honest, most of us are like, I live there too. I live there too. For me, it was like this. <laughs> I work my off. I put in way too many hours. Uh, I've been trying to change some things with my calendar, and my schedule so that I could live a life of normalcy and sanity. Uh, But long story short, it feels like no matter what I do, how much I put into it, how much time I'm putting into my relationship with God in prayer and word, how often my wife and I do date night, tonight, yes. doesn't matter how much I do for others or don't do for others. What I say yes to that I should and the things that I say no to that I shouldn't do, it doesn't even matter how much effort I'm putting into it. I am fairly often quite frustrated and left wondering in life if it's all worth the responsibility and the sacrifice and the cost. (laughs) Welcome to the inner world of most uh, adults. When you begin to understand the responsibilities of Life and work and parenting—it uh, just—it adds up, and you just—it's frustrating. So, true story: I'm walking around the office this Friday afternoon, and uh, I'm describing um, some of my frustration to s- some folks who were within earshot about how my sermon wasn't done for the thousandth time yet again, and. And how I wondered about whether all this personal cost and sacrifice and time and energy um, were worth it. And and I realized at that moment as I'm saying that out loud, here I am frustrated all week. Especially frustrated this week. Wondering if the sacrifice is worth it. Check this. Well, I'm in the middle of a week writing a sermon on Matthew 13, 44-6 that was titled three months ago, worth it? (laughs) They all laughed. I did not think it was funny. Apparently God has more for me to learn about sacrifice for the kingdom being worth it. Friends, in the kingdom of God, it is worth whatever the sacrifice costs. And if we understand the incredible worth of possessing the kingdom of God, of being subject to the truth that Christ is King, we will learn to make that sacrifice joyfully. Jump in with me at Matthew thirteen, forty-four through forty-six. Uh, We're going to spend a little bit of time here on just the first phrase, the kingdom of heaven, and then we'll jump back into the text a little bit later. But I want to read all of that just so we get our heads in the right place again. 44 through 46. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now look at the beginning of 44 there. It says this, this first phrase, the kingdom of heaven. We're going to unpack a little bit about what the kingdom of heaven means here for a bit. And then we'll jump back into the text. Um, This is week two of eight in this series called the kingdom. And so we're going to do some more to to give some color and definition to what we mean by the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God. That phrase in the New Testament, Matthew especially uses the kingdom of heaven, uh, but it's the same. It's synonymous with the kingdom of God. And it's a phrase that is used 117 times throughout the New Testament. And it comes to the New Testament with a long history and a long precedent of of meaning from the Old Testament. So the kingdom of God is one of the most important themes in all of Scripture. And if you'll begin to understand it, you'll see that it ties much of the Bible together in a lot of ways when you're reading it. So, So what do we mean when we're talking about the kingdom of God? Good question. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that. We mean this. The kingdom of God is... I'm going to put this on screen. Thank you. The kingdom of God is the spiritually established rule and reign of God for all times and places. We'll leave that up here for a bit for those who are note takers. The kingdom of God is the spiritually established rule and reign of God for all times and places. The last of the definition is this. Next slide. It is already begun, but not fully finished. It is already begun... Meaning it's here, it's present, it's available, you can have it now, but it's not entirely here, it's not fully finished, it's not complete, and the fullness and power of glory of Jesus' return will finish it later, but we're not there yet. So go back to that first definition there, the kingdom of God is the spiritually established rule and reign of God for all times and places. Now, this is a definition that makes a huge number of assumptions (laughs) and we don't have time to delineate or defend all that goes into this definition. But for our purposes today, let me just point out two things, two things this definition implies that we need to be on the same page about. The first is this, God's kingdom is not bound by space or time or your existence or even your belief in it. God's kingdom is not bound by space or time or your existence or even your belief in it. Now, I understand that some here today uh, may not believe this. That, that that's okay, uh, or at least you may be skeptical about this point I'm making about God's kingdom. Um, that's okay, uh, but if indeed God is creator, which is a debatable point, I understand. Uh, but if indeed the Bible is right in saying that there is a God who is creator of all that is seen and unseen, as Scripture says, and He is all knowing, and He is all present, and He is all powerful and all loving, if a God like that exists, and the Bible. Is right, then his kingdom is not only real, but his rule and reign are not bound by space or time or your existence or your belief in him. That is how big this king and this kingdom most truly are. If indeed there is a God who is creator, and he is all knowing, all powerful, all loving, all present, if there is a God who is holy. And the truth that He is King, capital K, is incontrovertibly the most important truth in the history of the entire universe. And it implies that His rightful status as King, His rightful status as King of all, stands alone as a fact that makes Him worthy of our worship and deserving of our humble sacrifice. This means that it is the king who tells us who we are. It means that you and I are not king or queen of our lives. And that you and I do not get to fundamentally define who we are and why we exist. Because if there's someone who created us and he is king and he is holy, then he alone deserves the right to say, my creation is this and for this purpose. If the Bible is right, it is the existence of God as king that determines all reality and not our perceptions of reality that determine whether God is king. So, first thing, God's kingdom is not bound by space or time or existence or even your belief in him. (laughs) In fact, on the contrary, if there is a God as the Bible claims, then his rule is and his reign fundamentally define the realities of space and time and human existence and all that that can imply. Christian philosophy 101, class dismissed. Second thing this definition implies that is important for us to know is this. This kingdom is spiritually established. This is a spiritually established rule and reign. Meaning that forward movement in God's kingdom is always primarily spiritual movement. Spiritual progress. Sure, there are always... Practical consequences from that spiritual movement and progress. Jesus himself says, Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There are always practical consequences on the outside, but this kingdom doesn't move forward in the normal ways of the world as, the man's, as man's rules define forward progress or movement. When Samuel was sent by God to anoint David as king of Israel, Everyone, even including Samuel, seemed to think that certainly the next king would be the young, tall, good-looking men that were standing before Samuel there. And they were looking at one in particular in First Samuel 16. And First and, and 1 Samuel 16.7 says this as an indication to Samuel of how God works. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. This one in particular he was talking about. And this is great. He says this, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So restoring fallen creation, fixing sin, Redeeming humanity, sweeping up the messes of the world that we have created by our sin, leading people, leading your family, leading your small group, being a servant, all of it, all of it is at root, primarily, initially, a spiritual process. And it requires the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to change people from the inside out. That's the only way it works. So do not get hung up on looking for kingdom movement with outside, outwardly kinds of methods, human-centered measures. That's just not how it works in this kingdom. <laughs> so those are the two things we have to get through our heads about this definition of the kingdom of God. Number one, God's kingdom is not bound by space, time, your existence, or your belief in it. And number two, this is a spiritually established and forward-moving kind of kingdom. And before we jump back into the text, let me just say this about why this series is important. Um, We've already today and we're going to continue to make sweeping claims in this series about the kingdom, sweeping claims about the whole of reality. So here's what I think we need to continue to keep in mind in this series. If we will continue to, to learn to understand our lives our marriages, our parenting, our time, our money, our work, our resources, your reading of Scripture. If we'll begin to understand all these things as being about the coming of the kingdom of God, then you will begin to understand all of reality in clearer focus. I know that's a big claim, but I think it's true because I think the Bible is true about what it claims. If you'll begin to understand what is meant by the kingdom of God, and that Jesus came to establish that kingdom in hearts through the presence of the Holy Spirit, then you'll begin to understand your whole life is meant to be about that truth. You'll begin to see all of reality in a clearer focus. Your life is not your own. Your kids are not your own. Your spouse is not your own. Your money is not your own. Your talents are not your own. None of it is actually ours. My paycheck may come from First Christian Church. Yours come from somebody else. It's still God's money. You're still called to minister from it and to use your resources. It just is a difference in who writes the check. It's all God's resources. If you will pursue the kingdom and begin to see life with kingdom lenses, it will bring clarity about who you really are and why you really exist. Let me say that again because it's gargantuan. This is huge for us to understand. If you will pursue, go after the kingdom and begin to see life with kingdom lenses, it will bring clarity about who you really are and why you really exist. Tweet this. Matthew 13. Let's jump in and see what Jesus has to say about the value of the kingdom. He says this in Matthew 13. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now notice he says the kingdom of heaven is like, meaning the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field in a particular way and not in every conceivable way. Jesus is using a simile, S-I-M-I-L-E. English teachers, thank you, Uh, think back to high school English class. Jesus is using a simile here, and a simile is used not to fully describe everything about the points being compared, but the purpose of making a particular point because of the comparison or a few points. So when you hear somebody say, for example, um, listening to Scott preach is like Yo-Yo Ma playing the cello. (laughs) Thank you you know they're saying it's like listening to a master. <laughs> Some of you are sitting there thinking it's more like listening to a, you know, a, a dead baboon dying or, you know, or uh, in, in pain as it dies, which is more like disaster than master. But that's how a simile works. Okay. That's how a simile work, works, and he's not trying to say everything about the kingdom. He's trying to make a particular point about the kingdom, and we'll get there here. Um, some context before we move back in. Jesus has been teaching in the larger context about the mysteries, the secrets of the kingdom, and how you can be a part of it. And these two parallel parables, uh, a parable is an earthly story, heavenly meaning. Uh, Jesus is using these two parallel parables here to make a particular point about the kingdom. And so he says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found. So he discovers it and then he covers it up. And then, notice this, in his joy, he's joyfully doing this, in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Now, this scenario here with a man happening upon some treasure, seeing it, covering it up, buying the field, may sound a little weird to us today. I mean, I don't know about you, but I do not occasionally happen upon hidden treasure in a field. And I go, hey, priceless treasure, let me sell everything I have. Uh, This scenario may sound a little bit weird to us, but it was actually quite common then because there are no banks, uh, no safe deposit boxes. So people had to make their own arrangements uh, for keeping their valuables, for storing their valuables. And so they would often bury their valuables in a field somewhere, perhaps not their own. So, so in fact, uh, in many parts of the world at the time, finders keepers was a common legal rule. If you found it, you could keep it unless, unless somebody owned the field, which is why the man in this parable sold all he had in order to buy the field. So and Jesus is not saying for the record, uh, that you can buy your way into God's kingdom or, or, or that it's for sale. Um, the idea is that this man would sell all he had in order to acquire it. And the treasure is a way of making clear, making clear that being part of the kingdom is so valuable. It is so important that it is worth giving up whatever it is you have to give up in order to do it. And, and notice this. This is key. He does so joyfully in his joy. He goes and sells all that he had in order to get he he considered the kingdom so worth having that he gladly sold all he had in order to acquire this kingdom. So to this man selling everything relatively small price to pay, as it turned out, (laughs) relatively small price to pay. Now, Jesus teaches the same idea of the kingdom's worth in the next parable. 45 and 6. So let's keep moving on. It says this. There's a small twist, though, with this one. Again, in keeping with what I just said, in other words, again, just like I just said, the kingdom of heaven is like, simile, a merchant in search of fine per- pearls. Now, here's the small twist. Whereas in the first one, where the man uncovers the hidden treasure covers it up buys the field whereas in the first when the man happens upon a hidden treasure this merchant is deliberately searching for fine pearls he is apparently um, a dealer who is on a business trip to discover fine pearls for his business so that he can sell him sell the the, the pearls he finds So it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Verse 46, Who, on finding one pearl of great value, and this merchant would know he deals in pearls. He's got the expertise because he's known he's found one. On finding one pearl of great value, 46, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Because he knows it is worth getting rid of everything else in order to acquire this one pearl of great worth. He, understand, he understood that this one pearl was so fine, it was so amazing, that it is worth far more than all his accumulated wealth up to that point. Friends, King Jesus is using these parables to communicate to us that nothing in this world is more viable than possessing the kingdom of God. whether you happen upon it <laughs> or you are searching for it and you find it, the kingdom of God is more precious than anything else you could possibly have. Now, some of us may be thinking at this point, so how do I know when I've got it? When I've got the kingdom, how do I know if I possess the kingdom? Last week we said... That recognizing the kingdom means recognizing Jesus as king. So, how do you know when you've got the kingdom? You know you've got the kingdom when you would joyfully sacrifice whatever you had to sacrifice in order to have Jesus as your king. You know you've got the kingdom when you would joyfully sacrifice whatever you have in order to have Jesus as your king. So the question is, is that you? Would you joyfully sacrifice everything you have in order to have Jesus as your king? That's how valuable Jesus says this is. (laughs) And, And if not... If you wouldn't yet joyfully sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice in order to have Jesus as your king, what do you need to let go of, to give up, to sell, in order to have Jesus as your king? You see, friends, the good news of the coming of King Jesus and being able to live as his humble servant isn't just some sort of when-you-get-around-to-it-and-have-time kind of thing. Following Jesus is of such value and of such worth that it deserves a passionate and a diligent search that warrants us sacrificing all that we have just to have Jesus as King. those Those are just the words of Jesus. So if He wouldn't yet joyfully give up everything else in order to have Jesus as King, and the question remains, what are you still holding on to that's keeping you from acquiring Him? What are, you, what are you still selling your life to that isn't worth it? What are you still selling your life to today that won't be worth it tomorrow? Because if the Bible is right, And Jesus' claims are true. He has told us that someday the kingdom is coming in fullness and in power. And we'd better recognize it today so that we can join with Him tomorrow. And He says here, it's worth giving up everything. Everything you have in order to be a part of that. In just a moment, We're going to invite you to respond to this truth, to take a step toward, to take a step toward giving your hearts to the king. So we'd like to invite you to respond in whatever way appropriate for you. There are a few ways to do that. Um, Here at FCC, we talk about the nine habits. Uh, One of those is to identify with Christ in baptism. To identify with Christ in baptism is to stand among the body of Christ and to say, Jesus is my King. And I would joyfully give whatever I have to give in order for that to be the case. To commit to the church as a member is uh, an opportunity uh, for those who uh, have been baptized into Jesus to come here and to say among fellow believers, I commit to the kingdom's growth in you as you commit to your growth of the kingdom in me. Maybe this is an opportunity just to begin a conversation. Maybe you're not sure uh, about what this kingdom or Jesus as king thing means, uh, or maybe you're not sure what it is that you're still grasping onto that's keeping you uh, from Jesus being Lord. Um, we'd love to have that conversation with you. This is a safe place to begin those kinds of conversations. Uh, listen, listen, Every single person who calls Jesus King and Lord went through the process of learning how it is that they had to let go in order for Him to be Lord. So we'd like to begin that conversation with you um, as we stand as we sing together.